Welcome to the DTB podcast for May 2019, volume 57, number five. Uh, this is slightly later published than we'd normally expect, so apologies for that, but here we are. My name's David Fazakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, and I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Our editorial this month considers the new GP contract for England. So what's our interest in this? Uh, so, yes, this is a big development for GPs and, in fact, for primary care in general. And we looked at some of the major areas for the new contract. We were particularly taken by the focus on therapeutics. I think it's clear that the new contract has recognised the workload that GPs primarily, but also um, nurses, do uh, around therapeutics. This is now a £9 billion pound a year activity there are over 1.1 billion transactions going on in therapeutics in general practice and we look at the fact that a lot of the new focus for the contract is on looking at quality indicators for good prescribing and part of the interest in the, also the development of the new contract is the role of others helping to manage prescribing particularly pharmacists and social prescribers. That's right. I mean, I think one of the drivers for the whole of this contract is to improve the resilience of general practice. There's, I think, deep recognition that there's a crisis going on with poor recruitment of GPs and a lot of the drive for new funding into general practice will be attached to new staff, as you say, particular particularly clinical um, pharmacists and social prescribers, to do uh, some of this quality work for GPs. This is what's interesting from our point of view with a bulletin called Drugs and Therapeutics, is what it means for drugs and therapeutics. And, and one aspect that caught particularly our eye was the old exception reporting for the old contract, which was difficult to exclude people who didn't fit the normal pattern or didn't want to take medicines. That's right. I mean, there was definitely a feeling under the old quality and outcomes framework that to exclude someone, they had to have some legitimate exclusion criteria or be not suitable. And actually, of course, a lot of these patients were just actually having looked at the evidence with their GP and discussed it and they simply said thank you very much doctor but actually for me I would rather not take this drug or that drug and what I think is good in this new contract is there are going to be five different reasons that you can state when looking at uh, the care you're offering patients and excluding them from quaff and one of them will be following a shared decision making conversation the patient does not wish to take the medication offered which I think is an entirely reasonable option. So good news that the contract is perhaps reflecting real life as it should be. Indeed, yes. Good, thank you very much. And our first main article this month is a review of chronic cough. So what do we cover? So this is a, a really quite a broad review of uh, looking at how you might approach patients who present with chronic cough, a very common problem, perhaps as many as 10% of patients suffer from this. And we look at chronic idiopathic cough that's people who cough with no underlying uh, reason that you can find and also the more common perhaps refractory chronic cough patients who have got some underlying condition that uh, needs investigation and treatment. So a lot of the assumptions based in the article are that you've been through a diagnostic process that's ruled out people with with red flag symptoms and dealt with them appropriately and this leaves those two groups and how you manage them? Absolutely right. So we're not really starting at, at the sort of 
red flag position. We're saying you've done that first safety netting and now you've got the patient who's perhaps had their chest X-ray and they've got no other red flags. The chest X-ray is normal. They've still got their cough. What should they do? And I think one of the drivers for this article was that there have been uh, some evidence that less than 25% of patients uh, with chronic cough will have had very little in the way of further investigation such as spirometry before they're referred to secondary care and there's a great deal we can do in primary care to treat these patients or perically try and treat them before we consider secondary care. So there's a lot that can be done in primary care before that that referral and is this a common problem that you see regularly? Yes I think so I mean I think it's it's an interesting problem because it definitely there's a seasonal element to it with obviously things like uh, seasonal rhinitis but also there's uh, a therapeutics issue around the use of things like ACE inhibitors so for me it's I quite enjoy this sort of problem it's something which usually actually if you work hard at it you can find an answer and patients will thank you because chronic cough actually does have a significant impact on quality of life. And the authors touch on some possible developments in the world of managing chronic cough in terms of other drug treatments and speech and language therapy? Yes, I think uh, it's recognised that for some people they might have what's sometimes called cough hypersensitive syndrome. And We've talked about central sensitisation in a previous article um, looking at pain in particular, but there may even be an element of central sensitisation involved in chronic idiopathic cough. And in those situations, looking at other sort of non-therapeutic things such as breathing exercises, speech and language therapy, often a very useful way forward. And even the slightly controversial area of low-dose opioids in the management of chronic cough, we cover briefly and highlight the limitations in the evidence for their use as well. Yes, I, I think that we all are deeply aware now that uh, long-term opioids are a, a poor idea in almost every situation except in end-of-life care. And I think this is a situation where perhaps whilst they've been the bedrock of a lot of cough medications going back to the 1800s, I think now is the time not to use those. Okay, thank you very much. And our final article this month is a case report uh, looking at the use of nitrofurantoin. So what happened? Uh, so this is a case report on a patient who was given nitrofurantoin, a short course, one week course of 100 milligrams twice a day for a, a presumptive UTI and who developed uh, acute hepatotoxicity about five days into his treatment. Uh, and I think many of us are aware that nitrofurantoin is associated with hepatotoxicity if given over a long period, but I think I was certainly not aware of any instances of an acute episode such as this. So some interesting learning points. I had a quick look at the SPC, summary of product characteristics, and certainly it's listed there, but unknown frequency, so there's no, no real details given. And I also had a look at the MHRA's drug analysis prints, 8,000 adverse reports recorded on their list, of which 300 relate to the liver but again you know it's not clear whether this is is how common this is because we don't know how often these are reported so it's there in the literature it's there in the reports 
but again it's it doesn't seem to be that common no and i think for many of us nitrofurantoin is a little bit of a gray drug by that i mean it's something which perhaps you weren't brought up on it's only recently become first line therapy for utis and it does have a couple of stings in its tail the other one that i think we need to remember is that it is not effective in patients with impaired renal function and indeed in the case report i think they felt that a uh, impaired renal function was a risk factor for hepatotoxicity so it's one of those drugs where we just have to be alert when we're using it and of course we are using it more often than we used to so some good good learning points okay thank you very much Uh, to read these and any of our articles please visit our website at dtb.bnj.com